Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Hello and welcome back to the Do Theology podcast. My name is Jeremy, and today we continue to seek to live up to our name, the podcast's name, as we seek to do theology here together. Well, in my last episode, I started a little series on giving an overview of some of the main aspects of covenant theology, as well as providing a critique from a dispensational perspective, a perspective I take. And uh, we looked at hermeneutics, we looked at the three covenants of covenant theology, we also looked at the biblical covenants as I see them, and uh, I, I had a grand time. Uh, I'm actually recording this before that episode comes out, so I don't know what kind of feedback I've gotten, but I'm sure it's lively. And uh, here I am recording the next episode where today we are going to look into Israel and the church, limited atonement, and the law. Very exciting. (laughs) Well, uh, before we get into that, let me just have a quick word about why this is important. This conversation is is very, very important because even though this is a secondary issue, um, that does not mean it's not important. Uh, I basically just said this is important because this is important. But I do want to clarify that that this is a secondary issue. Uh, This isn't a gospel issue, though there was some chatter I saw on Twitter today where someone was trying to make the covenant of works in covenant theology, a gospel issue. And that was interesting. But um, th- this is not a gospel issue. And this is not a an issue that is definitional to Christianity. However, this is a very important issue because, okay, here's where I'm finally explaining why it's important. It is important because these two systems of theology are both seeking to summarize and articulate and explain God's program as he has revealed it. And as far as important things go, that's pretty high up there. That's that's really comprehensive. That's really exhaustive. There's a lot to talk about. These are two humongous schools of thought, two humongous systems of theology that seek to really cover the Bible front to back and, and explain in a truncated form what exactly God is doing in the world and and uh, where this is all headed. So even though I do say, yes, it's secondary, and the 
people on either side of this should not uh, condemn people on the other side. We should still recognize this conversation as being one of great importance. It's a very valuable thing to think through. It's extremely important that churches discuss this and see how they're going to teach the Bible and how that fits with these systems. Um, not saying that you should pick a, a theology and seek to teach the Bible in a way that just perfectly comports with whatever system of theology you're most comfortable with, nothing like that. But I think that you'll see as this goes along, if you haven't seen already, that in a church, you can't have a, a two teachers who get like equal teaching time and have equal influence and equal authority in the church being on different sides of this issue. You just, you can't. So even though they're both Christians and both perfectly lovely people, they can't really coexist as like co-pastors in a church. Eventually one side is going to have to give in to the other or whatever. Okay. That's just kind of how it is. Um, it's that important. So it's secondary. Yes. In that it's not definitional to Christianity, but it's so important that it's actually going to determine where you are comfortable going to church and who's teaching you're comfortable sitting under and that kind of thing. All right. So I hope that makes sense. And I should also mention that this episode, like the last episode, is brought to you by the Do Theology store. Go to store.dotheology.com and you could support us by buying a mug, buying a tumbler, buying a hoodie, buying a t-shirt, buying a sticker, buying something to rep the podcast some way, somehow, and throw a few shekels our way. That would be great. If you want to support us without getting something in return, buy us a coffee. There's a link in the description where you could sign up to throw a buck or five bucks or 10 bucks our way each month, just as a way of saying, hey, I love you and I appreciate you and you should keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> we would appreciate that. So check it out. Link in description. All right. Well, today let's get into some more aspects of covenant theology's uh, distinctives and a critique of those things from a dispensational perspective. So really this series is a compare and contrast, mostly a contrast, of covenant theology and dispensationalism. And the way I'm going about it is instead of just saying uh, covenant theology says this, dispensationalism says this, and then walk away, I'm saying Covenant theology says this, and here's what I'm saying is wrong with it from a dispensational perspective. That's that's how we're walking through the contrasts here. And so uh, that's what we're doing today as we continue on, starting with Israel. So again, this is in my own words. This is in a way that I've worded it to sum up covenant theology's perspective on Israel and the other topics that we'll look at. You will, not dis you will not agree with me on everything I say. You won't agree with all my summations. You won't agree with all my critiques, no matter which side you're on. And that's okay. So let's start. With all that in mind, let's start. Here's what covenant theology says about Israel. For many who are covenant theologians, ethnic Israel or national Israel, you could say, has no role anymore in God's program. Rather, Israel is to be understood as the people of God in all ages. So, in this sense, Israel has existed since Adam and continues to exist today. Now, um, here's where we really start to get different types of covenant theologians, and we'll see that even more next week as we look at eschatology. But you'll have some who are believers, subscribers, 
to covenant theology who will say, in the end, shortly before Christ returns, there will be a mass conversion of Jews. And so in that sense, the Jewish people still have a special place in God's program in that there will be a mass conversion at the end. And we'll talk through that more uh, next week about how those people um, still have a different view of Israel than dispensationalists do. But you'll have people who will say that. But you'll also have a lot of people, especially those who uh, tend to be more post-millennial, um, those who put a lot of weight on 70 AD or AD 70, I think that's the more popular way of saying it, they will say any particular role that ethnic or national Israel once had, it's completely over. And so um, I think that's probably the loudest voice right now in the internet world, probably not in the academic world, but in the, in the uh, YouTube and Twitter world. There are a lot of reform people, covenant theologians, who would say ethnic or national Israel has no more unique role in God's program. And what is true for all covenant theologians is they'll see the word Israel as not meaning this ethnicity or this nation specifically, but instead the word Israel means the people of God in every age. So Israel did not start with uh, Moses. It did not start with Jacob. It did not start with Abraham even. Israel has just existed since Adam. And Israel continues to exist today as God's people. Anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, a believer in the gospel, that person is a part of Israel. That is the covenant theology view, okay? So even though there's some nuance there, that is the overall view. So here's my critique of that. Israel has always had reference to the literal, physical descendants of Jacob, consisting of 12 tribes. Gentile believers are sons of Abraham by faith, but they are never called the offspring of Jacob as Israel is. So my critique of the covenant theology view is that you cannot disconnect the ethnicity and the nation from the term Israel and say that the word for Israel actually is just a general term for all the people of God. When you look at the Bible, the word for Israel always has reference to the literal physical descendants of Jacob, not just Abraham, but specifically Jacob. That's really important. And sometimes, of course, that's talking about the land, like uh, somebody entered Israel, talking about the land of Israel. But that land, of course, cannot be disconnected from those people either because that land was given to that specific people. The promise to Abram all the way back in Genesis 13 of that land, which was a forever promise, was reissued, that promise was reissued to his son Isaac and then to Jacob, not to Ishmael, not to Esau, but to Isaac and Jacob. And therefore, the sons of Jacob own that land. The sons of Jacob are Israel. Now, I make reference here to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, talk about how we, as believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who are Gentiles, who have been united to God by faith in Christ, we are sons of Abraham by faith. We, we identify with Abraham, the believer. That's very true. But that does not make us Israel, because even though we are sons of Abraham, we are not sons of Jacob. You see the distinction there? We are identified with Abraham 
in that we believe just as he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But that doesn't subsequently make us Israelites. We don't get a tribe of, of Israel. We are still Gentiles, but we are children of God because we have believed. The sons of Jacob are the only ones who are referred to as Israel in Scripture. And I also mentioned there Isaiah 65, 9 and Jeremiah 46, 27. There are other passages that do this too that basically say that Israel are the sons of Jacob. That's who they are. And here's another passage that I want to show you. This is Psalm 105, starting in verse 5. It says, Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth, O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So if you look at verses 8 through 10, we see here, this is uh, David, recounting the forever covenant, the forever unconditional covenant. It came to Abraham, it came to Isaac, it came to Jacob, and he sums it up by saying at the end of verse 10, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And this everlasting covenant, verse 11, is the land of Canaan, <laughs> saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan, as the portion of your inheritance, right? So that's the way the Bible talks about these things, is that we have Israel and the land being confined to the sons of Jacob as the benefactors, the recipients of promise. Covenant theology doesn't, doesn't recognize that in Scripture. Instead, covenant theology says there's something much more broad going on with this term Israel, and it refers to all the people of God during all ages, starting with uh, Adam and going through the end of the age kind of thing. All right, so that's where they are with the Israel issue. Now, closely tied to that is the church. So here I gave the summary of the covenant theology position of Israel. Now here's the summary of the covenant theology position regarding the church. There is no meaningful distinction between Israel and the church. Israel was the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. Since God will not bring national Israel back into focus as its own entity, the church is to be understood as the culmination of Old, Test Old Testament prophecies about blessings for Israel. All right, so no critical distinction between Israel and the church. You could say that as you look at Israel in the Old Testament, well, that was the church of the Old Testament. And as you consider the church found in the New Testament, that's Israel in the New Testament. And this is really, really important to covenant theology that seeks to maintain a continuity throughout Scripture, especially regarding the people of God. They do not like the idea of seeing a distinction between the church and Israel because that then sets up a discontinuity that is uncomfortable and and doesn't comport with that system. I'm not saying they're they're driven by comfort, but they're just saying, look, that would that would divide up God's program too much. Instead, there has to be a flow here. There has to be a flow. All right. And so that's where they're coming from when they say 
Israel's the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. Well, because of that, like I say in my summary here, because of that view, the church must be understood as the fulfillment or the culmination of these Old Testament prophecies that were made about national Israel. You go to Amos 9, for example, that talks about the blessings in the land that Israel will enjoy, the agricultural blessings and rebuilding of the cities. You go to Zechariah 14, at the end of Zechariah 14, where it talks about the Feast of Booths being celebrated in the Messiah's kingdom, and even the Egyptians will celebrate with the Israelites. And during that time, uh, he will rule with the rod of iron. The Lord himself will, the Messiah, and the Egyptians will be commanded to uh, obey God's rules perfectly during that time when it comes to recognizing the Feast of Booths. Uh, you look at Isaiah 19 that talks about Egypt and Assyria being with Israel as God's people and there being unity and peace and safety and harmony among the nations in the Middle East. All of that is happening now to the covenant theologian because that did not happen before the time of Christ. Those nations were not playing nice together and all of that stuff. That wasn't happening. The, the cities weren't rebuilt in the way that the Old Testament prophets said they would be before Jesus's time. Well, because the covenant theologian says there's never going to be a time where Israel comes back into focus as a national entity, those things have to be happening now in a spiritual sense. And that fulfillment has to be happening in the church. Or you, maybe some would say in the work of Christ and in, in his dying and rising again, it happened then. But either way, it doesn't happen in a literal sense because Israel's not coming back as its own entity. And this is what we talked about last time with hermeneutics, where there's this New Testament priority where all things are being fulfilled in the New Testament. Therefore, you go back to the Old Testament and you project your theological conclusions from the New Testament onto the Old Testament prophecies. That's what, if I'm getting into my critique now, that's what's going on as they consider the church and the church's role in God's program. The church is the fulfillment of all things uh, because of Jesus's work in purchasing the church and then building his church. We're now seeing the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Whereas I would say, no, I'm not going to go back and reinterpret the Old Testament that way. So here's my critique, if I could sum it up as I did on paper. The church is not the Israel of the New Testament. Instead, the church is a mystery. I cite Ephesians 3 here. And that means that it was not disclosed in ages past. As a new work of God, the church is distinct from national Israel in God's program, not replacing Israel or usurping the promises God made to Jacob's descendants. Yet the church is made to participate in the new covenant. I also cite Luke twenty-two twenty there where Jesus says, this is the new covenant of my blood. So the church is a new thing. This is language that's found in Ephesians 2. God has made one new man out of both Jew and Gentile. The church is a new thing. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Israel was not the church of the Old Testament. The church is new, according to Paul writing in the first century. And as a new work of God, the church is distinct from national Israel not replacing and not usurping the promises made to Israel. So as a dispensationalist, this is a very important point. You got to maintain a distinction between Israel and the church and not conflate the two. So very, very big difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism when it comes to Israel and the church. Okay.
All right, well, I'll leave it at that for the moment uh, and move on to talk about limited atonement. So much more could be said about Israel and the church, but this is a flyby where I'm giving you the covenant theology perspective and then giving you the dispensational critique. And I've done that. So I'll now I'll move on to the next thing. Limited atonement. <clears throat> now, limited atonement is an interesting one to talk about because there are dispensationalists who believe in limited atonement, but not all. Um, in fact, I would say it's the minority view within dispensationalism. However, pretty much all covenant theologians will believe in limited atonement. So let's talk about why this is. Let's figure out why that is the case. First, here's my summation of the covenant theology perspective on limited atonement. As an outflow of the covenant of redemption, the Son only died for those whom the Father gave him in eternity past. Some also teach that Christ's atonement for the elect began with his life, fulfilling the covenant of works in their stead by earning them righteousness with law-keeping. Well, lots going on there. All right, well, let's pause and make sure we got definitions in order. First thing that's mentioned here that needs to be defined rightly is the covenant of redemption, which we talked about last time. As an outflow of the covenant of redemption, the Son only died for those whom the Father gave him in eternity past. Covenant of redemption, it's a covenant between at least the Father and the Son. Some would include the Spirit also. But Father and Son agree to this plan of salvation in a covenant with themselves where the Father would elect a people and the Son would go and die for those people. That's the covenant of redemption. And so as an outflow of that, it would make sense that the Son would only die for those people. There are many out there who make a philosophical case for limited atonement this way. Uh, James White would argue this way, and Mike Riccardi, who is a dispensationalist at the Master's Seminary, he would make this argument too, maybe not using covenant of redemption language, but something very close to it, and say, look, if the Father elected a people from before the world was, and he gave these people to the Son, and the Son you know, knew that he had these people that the Father gave him, why would he go rogue and die for the whole world, right? So it's a logical argument, and I'll just leave it at that for the moment, okay? That's, that's uh, the first thing to know about the covenant theology view of limited atonement. But the second thing to know is that there are some people who will say that this atonement that is limited is not just found in his dying in their place for their sins, but some say he fulfilled the covenant of works on their behalf by earning them righteousness through his law-keeping. In fact, I would say this is a very critical point of covenant theology that gets overlooked oftentimes. Well, let's remember what the covenant of works is. The covenant of works within covenant theology, again, it's a covenant I reject. I don't see it in the Bible. But according to covenant theologians, the covenant of works is when God made a covenant with Adam in the garden and told him, if you keep the Ten Commandments, you will live forever. Well, Adam failed. And so Jesus comes along and he succeeds as the second Adam where the first Adam failed. The first Adam failed to keep the law. The second Adam comes and he keeps the law perfectly, earning righteousness for the elect, and that is the start of his atonement. Then when he died on the cross, he finishes the atonement. 
So it's a both and thing. It's not just dying on the cross. It's actually both his living and his dying that atone for man's sins. Interesting. Well, as a commentary on this, before I get into the critique, R.C. Sproul, I have a long quote from him where he connects these dots for us and explains how Christ's atonement began with his life in fulfilling the covenant of works for the elect only. R.C. Sproul said, Beyond the negative fulfillment of the covenant of works in taking the punishment due those who disobey it, Jesus offers the positive dimension that is vital to our redemption. He wins the blessing of the covenant of works on all the progeny of Adam who put their trust in Jesus. Where Adam was the covenant breaker, Jesus is the covenant keeper. Where Adam failed to gain the blessedness of the tree of life, Christ wins that blessedness by his obedience, which blessedness he provides for those who put their trust in him. In this work of fulfilling the covenant for us in our stead, theology speaks of the active obedience of Christ. That is, Christ's redeeming work includes not only his death, but his life. His life of righteousness, no, his life of perfect obedience, rather, becomes the sole ground of our justification. It is his perfect righteousness gained via his perfect obedience that is imputed to all who put their trust in him. Therefore, Christ's work of active obedience is absolutely essential to the justification of anyone. Without Christ's active obedience to the covenant of works, there is no reason for imputation. There is no ground for justification. If we take away the covenant of works, we take away the active obedience of Jesus. If we take away the active obedience of Jesus, we take away the imputation of his righteousness to us. And if we take away the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we take away justification by faith alone. Big quote, and you would do well to go back and listen to that again, or if you're on YouTube, to pause and read it as I put it up on the screen there. But through this chain of consequence, he says, if Christ did not keep the law to fulfill the covenant of works, we do not have justification by faith alone. That is pretty bold. That is basically, in my view, elevating the covenant of works to a gospel issue. Yet his very good friend, John MacArthur, rejects the covenant of works, and they were still able to be friends. So I guess he didn't see it as a gospel issue, but the way he worded that was really, really strong. All right, so um, that's R.C. Sproul. I grabbed that from Ligonier. Um, I provided the links and references for all these quotes, and that's where I got that one. So how would I critique this limited atonement stuff? Not just that Christ died only for the elect, but that he kept the law for the elect and that earned them righteousness for the elect alone. Well, here's a really brief way of putting this. It is possible that Christ's atonement only had the sins of the elect in view. And I give four passages to reference that. However, there are reasons to believe his atonement incorporated more purposes than only accomplishing the redemption of the elect. And I give four references for that. <laughs> so is this a punt? I don't think it's a punt. 
But I'm also recognizing that, yeah, there are, there are reasons why people believe in limited atonement. And it's not just covenant theology that gets them there. However, um, there are also really good reasons to recognize why some people would conclude the atonement was unlimited. So I, I, I give references for both. All right. I think if I was pressed, I could make arguments both ways. I personally lean the direction that Christ's atonement was unlimited, that there were more purposes in his atonement than only accomplishing the redemption of the elect. Um, but I mean, I could see why someone would, would see that he only died for the elect and that's all he did in his atonement. Now, as it pertains to his vicarious law keeping, keeping the law as atonement to fulfill the covenant of works within the covenant theology framework, I definitely disregard that. Um, and those reasons I think will become clear as we get into our final section for today, talking about the law. Okay. And the, as we talk about the law, I have it broken up into two sections, the divisions of the law and the role of the law. And so I think maybe the best thing to do would be to jump right into this and I can connect it to Christ's vicarious law keeping for us as atonement for our sins. I can connect those things as we go along. Covenant theology, when it comes to the view of the law that they espouse, it could be summed up this way. The law given through Moses in the Old Testament has three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. The moral aspect of the law is binding on humanity from creation to consummation, summed up in the Ten Commandments. Most who hold to covenant theology believe that the civil and ceremonial aspects were binding on humanity only from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. Okay, so it starts with the law has three parts, moral, civil, ceremonial. Again, just to kind of dabble into my uh, critique uh, here to get into that just a touch, we don't get those categories in the Bible. The Bible says the law, gives us the law, and that's what we have. Moral, civil, ceremonial categories divided up, we, we just don't have that in the Bible. But it's critical to the covenant theology system that that's how it's divided. Because for most people, civil and ceremonial laws, those for God's people have uh, faded away after the time of Christ. He, he fulfilled all of that. Now what remains is the moral aspect of the law that is still binding on God's people. And it can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. Now, what's very interesting about that is you have some covenant theologians who are Sabbatarians, meaning they believe you should keep upholding the fourth commandment. And then you have those who say, well, yes, the Ten Commandments sum up the moral law, and we are still under the Ten Commandments, except for that one. <laughs> okay, so there's a disagreement among covenant theologians about that. And I'll add those covenant theologians who say that we should still uphold the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day. They actually don't believe that because that's Saturday. And they believe what that means is we should worship on Sunday and use Sunday as a day of rest. Well, the Sabbath was never in reference to Sunday. Okay. Well, that's a side critique. So let's get to my uh, critique summary here about this dividing up of the law. Here's my critique. God's law was not given with categories. 
Therefore, any labeling of laws is to some degree superficial. The church is not under or bound to the law. Romans 6, 14, Romans 7, 6, Galatians 6, 18. Instead, the church is under the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. As the law given through Moses has been taken out of the way as an obligation for believers, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. And in fact, you find some, uh, maybe even you could say stronger language than that, than taken out of the way uh, in Ephesians um, chapter 2. Again, this is that passage I was referencing earlier about God has made one new man out of Jews and Gentiles, his church. He has made one new man. And what he says about the law is that it was the enmity, it was the um, substance of our opposition was the law. The Jews were given this law. National Israel was given this law as their constitution. Well, now it says, um, boy, I'm going to have to move this around just a touch. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 14, that he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross." By it having put to death, by it having put to death the enmity. Pretty strong language. Jesus broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And you also have, of course, as I mentioned in that summary, these phrases, mostly from the Apostle Paul in his letters, that say we're not under the law, we're not bound to the law. Okay? That uh, these divisions with it's moral, civil, ceremonial to the divisions have faded away and we're not under those. We're not bound to those, but the moral remains and we are bound to that one. You just don't have that language in the New Testament. It's just not there. Instead, you have the law, like here in Ephesians 2, being treated as a unit. The law of commandments contained in ordinances and it's been taken out of the way. He's taken that enmity away and there's a, a new way forward for God's church. And uh, that leads us right into the next thing, which is the role of the law. The next disagreement that we have, the role of the law. Sorry, you got to readjust this a touch. There we go. For the covenant theologian, this is the role of God's law. And again, it would be the moral law in view. Because the moral aspect of the law is still binding, it must have a sanctifying element. Thus, one of the uses of the law is for Christians to look to it to grow in the faith. All right. So um, here is where covenant theology ends up going after making the three divisions, saying one of the divisions remains, and this is its use in the Christian life, is it helps you to become more like Christ. Now, there's a big disagreement in Reformed theology about how to phrase this, how to work through this. And both sides are probably upset with the way I worded it. <laughs> but this gets into the law and gospel conversation and how to keep those two things distinct and how much the law plays into our Christian living and et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
but at the heart of this would be John Calvin's three uses of the law, where he says, look, on the one hand, and you have three hands in this illustration, on the one hand, the law restrains sin in culture and to the society. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the, the law uh, convicts us of our, our sin personally. And then on the other, other hand, you have the law being useful for those who have been born again as they continue to look to the commands written in stone. It then has the sanctifying element to it that helps us grow in Christ-likeness. Now, if you want a good overview of this, and it's not a huge book, it's a very readable book. It's a book by Matthew Ferris titled, If One Uses It Lawfully. Matthew Ferris, If One Uses It Lawfully, where he gives an overview of the Reformed or Covenant theology view of the law and critiques it from a dispensational perspective and does a fine job. And and what's interesting about, here, I'll put this up again. What's interesting about the uh, covenant theology view of the role of the law today and how it can be used for Christians to grow in the faith is that because the divisions of the law are superficial, um, what is moral, what is ceremonial, what is civil, it creates disagreements within covenant theology about which laws are applicable this way. They will all say, Yes, the moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. But if you wanted to get more specific than the Ten Commandments, instead of summing it up, if you wanted to go into those 600-plus laws and look and see which moral ones still continue today, which ones you should apply to your life, there's a lot of disagreement. Because the Bible doesn't say, here are the moral laws, da-da-da-da-da. Here are the civil laws, da-da-da-da-da. Here are the ceremonial laws, blah 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 It doesn't do that, so it creates disagreements. And to me, that's prime evidence that we shouldn't be trying to divvy it up that way. But uh, I mean, for example, take tithing. Is tithing moral, civil, or ceremonial? Mm, you could make a case any which way you wanted to go on that one, couldn't you? Um, there, there are many, many laws that are like that. The, the Sabbath one is another. Is it moral, civil, or ceremonial? You could go a lot of different directions. All right, so um, there are a lot of disagreements within covenant theology about which laws are still binding and about which laws have a role to play in our sanctification as we look to the law to grow in Christ likeness. Well, um, I am really outside of that conversation, um, but before I get to my critiques, I want to put it in their own words again. I got three quotes I want to share with you about the continuing role of the law from covenant theology perspective. Michael Horton, from his book, Introducing Covenant Theology, page 188, he says, this moral law can be easily distinguished from the ceremonial and civil laws that are inextricably connected to the Mosaic theocracy and is still in force for both believers and even for all human beings, since it is preserved in their conscience from creation. I think it's quite humorous that he says the moral law <laughs> can be easily distinguished from the ceremonial and civil laws. I don't think that's the case. Uh, and for proof of that, I've not seen, now maybe it exists, but I've not seen Anybody come out with a book that says, here are the 613 laws of 
the Old Testament broken down neatly into their three categories because it's easily distinguished. I bet someone has tried doing that. I bet there is probably some sort of book out there that attempts to do that, but there are way too many disagreements within the covenant theology camp for anybody to endorse it. And so it's not going to gain in popularity because everyone's going to disagree with it because the Bible itself doesn't divide it up that way. But that's what Michael Horton has to say about it. Okay, Um, here's an article from Ligonier. It doesn't have an author on it. But Ligonier says this about the continuing role of the law. The moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding upon us. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified, not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. To love Christ is to keep his commandments. To love God is to obey his law. So what uh, the author of this article has done in that second to last sentence, to love Christ is to keep his commandments. In this context, what that author has done is equate Jesus's commandments with the law of Moses. Now, again, referencing Matthew Ferris, that little book I told you about, which you should get if one uses it lawfully. Um, that in that book, Matthew Ferris does a good job showing how Jesus's commandments were actually different than the law of Moses because Jesus taught us to love our enemies. And guess what? Not in the law of Moses, not in the 10 commandments. Jesus's love is greater than the law. The law, of course, reveals God's character and nature to a degree but not the same degree that Jesus does. Jesus's revelation of God, you know, um, we've seen the only begotten of God. We've not seen God himself, but the only begotten of God has explained him. John 1, 18, I believe. Jesus's revelation of God is higher than the law. And Jesus's commands for us go beyond the law of Moses. And it's not just love your enemies. It's also a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says in John 13, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus set a new standard and went beyond the law, above the law, and gave us a higher standard. So you can't simply say, to love Christ is to keep his commandments. That's why we should obey the law of Moses. There's more to that conversation than that. But um, I would also point out, too, in this quote, Ligonier says, I say Ligonier, there was someone who wrote this, someone at Ligonier, we are justified in order that we may become obedient to God's law. That is not something that is taught in the New Testament. Getting into my critique part again, that's not something we're taught in the New Testament. All right, one more quote I want to share with you on this from a reform guy. This is Ligon Duncan. He says, the moral law continues to be the perfect standard of obedience in the covenant of grace. Ooh, I hate, 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 hate that sentence. The moral law continues to be the perfect standard of obedience in the covenant of grace. Based on what I just said, as I was starting to critique what Ligonier's article was saying, I I guess you understand why I have such a strong reaction here. Jesus's life is the perfect standard of obedience. Christ likeness is the perfect standard of obedience. (sighs) Okay. Got to recover. Got to bounce back. He goes on to say, 
The overwhelming amount of law material in the New Testament is an argument that the New Testament authors themselves did not see a radical dichotomy between the standard of law in the Old Covenant and the standard of law in the New Covenant. Okay, so that is Ligon Duncan, and I grabbed that article from thirdmill.org, and you've got the URL up there if you want to check that out. The moral law, which, again, whatever that means as you go back and try to define it, to to, to to define it, to find it, using your discernment to divide the law of Moses, that moral law is your perfect standard of obedience as a Christian. That's what Ligon Duncan says. All right. Well, um, I disagree. Here's my critique. Let me sum it up. Reflecting God's nature, the law is holy, just, and good. It revealed God's will for Israel and man's inability to meet God's standard. It also serves as a tutor to lead men to Christ. When one believes in Christ, he is no longer under the tutor, Galatians 3.25. Believers are not sanctified through law, but by the Spirit. And I reference there 2 Corinthians 3, 4-11, which to me puts the whole matter to bed. It is so plain. We are not sanctified through law, but by the Spirit. Not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. We are sanctified. There's something old, there's something new, and the law is tied to something old, which has faded away, and the new has come. Uh, In Galatians 3, Galatians chapter 3 is that Famous passage, again, where we are identified as sons of Abraham. We are identifying with Abraham by faith. We are believers like Abraham was, and therefore we are called sons of Abraham. And the law was introduced because of transgressions. That's an interesting phrase that Paul uses, which to me does away with the covenant of works idea. The covenant of works says the Ten Commandments came in before there was the first sin. You can go back and listen to what I said about the covenant of works last time for that. But the law comes in and it's a tutor. It's beating us up with God's holiness. And it's so good to do that. It's requiring all these things and it's not supplying any ability. And then Jesus comes along and we are saved by faith in the work of Christ. And now we are no longer under that tutor. Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. So that's a pretty big critique, pretty big difference. Uh, I hope you're seeing the gap between these two views, these two systems of theology. Again, I I don't want you to to elevate this to a gospel issue or definitional to Christianity issue. Yet at the same time, I hope you see this as extremely important. Very, 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 very important. And uh, maybe this will help you in your study as you consider what you believe the Bible to be teaching on these issues. I'm offering my summaries and my critiques, and I hope it helps. Thanks for listening. Submit any feedback you got at show at dotheology.com. Comment on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you see us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe I'll even read your response on the next episode and interact with it. Wouldn't that be interesting? All right. Well, thanks for listening. The Lord bless you.